our memory is this like funky fluid thing, <laughs> our species memory. And when I think back and like, oh no, you said you were going to do this. Or I said, you know, I would make this type of commitment. The other person remembers it different. And, and it doesn't necessarily mean that one person's right or one person's wrong. It, it mostly means that we failed to write it down on paper. Welcome to the Roots of Impact podcast. I'm David Griot. Roots of Impact is a podcast where we interview leaders, teachers, and healers and learn about their journeys. Our mission is to spread seeds of inspiration so that you too may flower as a change maker and start tapping into your full potential as a conscious human being. Today I'm joined by my friend Scott Gallant. He's an expert in permaculture, sustainability, and also building communities. He ran a sustainability education center for nine years, and now he works as a permaculture consultant, helping people put their land to better use. Today, we have a fascinating discussion about working together with nature and with humans. And without any further ado, I would like to say welcome, Scott. Thank you, David. Uh, great to be here, man. Oh, I'm just so delighted to have you joining us. This is going to be a great conversation. Um, so, Scott, could you please tell us where yeah. – so you, I, you now live in Costa Rica. How is it That's that right. you that you came from uh, living in Ohio to, uh, to living in Costa Rica being a permaculture expert? Yeah, um, you know, at a real basic level, as I was growing up in like little corn soy town in, in south, uh, southwestern Ohio, I kind of always knew I wanted something different, but I didn't know how to get out. There weren't people in my community, my network that I know, went backpacking in Central America or took gap years. That was a pretty foreign thing. Um, but after, after college, I, I basically had the chance to go explore out west a bit and work in the conservation field um, where I met uh, my partner at the time. And she kind of invited me to go hitchhiking through Mexico. And I weighed out all of these options, this corporate job offer I had in, in Wisconsin. I have a degree in economics. Um, staying in Colorado and working in the woods or going hitchhiking with this amazing uh, woman through Mexico. And I chose the latter, um, fortunately. And, you know, at a really basic level, I think looking back, the only reason I was able to make my way down here and kind of insert myself into a totally different world that I never expected, that I, it wasn't something I was craving in that way, like living as an expat or an immigrant in, in Costa Rica. Um, but really it came down to my privilege. Like I'm a white guy from the United States, from you know an upper middle class family. I didn't have any college debt. I have supportive parents. I'm the, like at the top of the privilege totem pole. And so that 
gave me the permission to basically do whatever I wanted. And, and at some point I realized that and I decided to run with it. And many, many steps have, have taken me here to this exact point, of course, but um, that's probably the big pattern in hindsight that, that has allowed me to step off the beaten path and, and explore. Well, it's, it's very beautiful that you, you, you've turned this, uh, privilege, uh, as you say it into, uh, into trying to help people develop projects and connect with nature and produce, uh, fruit and vegetables and live in harmony with each other. I know you have experience in d- designing communities and so, uh, thanks for your beautiful work. Um, <laughs> can you please explain to us what is permaculture? Um, it's yeah. not, it's never been super clear to me. All right. So there's a, there's one comparison that I like. So permaculture is to ecology as engineering is to physics. So physics are like these natural laws that govern our world. Engineering is how we take them and apply them for human application. Ecology has all these principles and laws of how nature works. The permaculture attempts to take those principles, those laws and apply them to human use. And typically that's toward land management. It's like, how do we grow food? How do we um, you know, improve our watersheds? How do we build soil? How do we make more forests? Um, but we can also apply those same ecological principles to how we design communities, to how we create relationships, business or otherwise, all the way down to like how we organize our closet or our bedroom. Um, you know, it ends up just being a design field. It's, it's based a lot in observation of nature. That's one of the, like, the, the first foundational principles. Um, there's a set of ethics that we rely on as kind of guideposts uh, for us. And then it draws a lot on indigenous knowledge and practices. We ask the question a lot, like how do people grow food here? How did they live here? How did they communicate here 500 years ago, pre-fossil fuels? Um, and we don't seek to go back to that time, but we seek to draw inspiration from that knowledge, those skills, those tools so that we can design today without a reliance on, you know, things like fossil fuels and other external inputs. That's the quick, very quick permaculture Uh (laughs) definition, my attempt. Thank you. It it reminds me a bit of the uh, open source movement in online, you know, where people, come together and draw on each other's expertise and just really uh, try to develop the best possible systems. And there's not a specific dogma, but rather it's like an ongoing developing body of knowledge that people, you know, work, work together on. Um, yeah. I think that's a great comparison. It's, it fits in this world of systems thinking of, of complexity theory. It's, it's all pattern and principle based. It's highly decentralized. There's, there's no one out there that says I can teach a permaculture course. Um, you know, that's something that I'm able to do based on basically feedback of students year after year that encourage new students to come and and sign up for a class, for example. Um, and I think that's a really powerful, it's a tricky thing, but it's a really powerful, um, you know, way to approach systems. 
Yeah. So Scott, um, if in my, in, in the talks that I've had with you, I get a sense that this is something that if you don't just do, but that you actually really care about and that you're passionate about. And I think that's probably why you've been so successful at it. So can you explain what, why does this make you tick? Like, what is it that inspires you about permaculture? Yeah, I think what I like about it the most is it gives people permission to try something. And, and that might be as simple as like starting to compost your food scraps from your kitchen or to plant out a small garden bed or to get chickens for the first time. Um, and it, there's, again, there's, there's no one out there that says you can or can't do anything. There's no one that says this is the right way or this is the wrong way. You can really make it your own. And we, we tend to live in this world that is highly, you know, the deep bureaucracies and academia where it's like, oh man, I need to take a class or get a degree before I can practice that. Um, and permaculture, the information's out there on the internet. There's tons of books. Um, it's very open source. It just gives you permission to like give it a go, to start small, which is one of our principles. And that to me is really nice. And what inspires me probably more than anything is, you know, I'm not, I'm not personally motivated by like climate change or like really large global issues. Those things just overwhelm me immediately. I, I don't know how to deal with that stuff. What really motivates me personally is like using my body, getting involved with my community, growing food, creating abundance in like the place I live. And then just like taking responsibility for my consumption, my production, my waste and helping other people do that. And that's what I see people just get inspired all the time. It's like, wait, this is how you make soap. It's that easy. Like how come no one taught me this? Like I'm never going to have to buy crappy soap from the store with God knows what in it again. And in that like encouragement of personal responsibility fits within the ethics of permaculture. And um, I think is a, is a really strong route for a permanent culture, a, a new type of culture that, you know, I think we're striving for that probably a lot of the people you talk with on the podcasts are, are working for. You're, you're, what you're telling me here is really <laughs> stimulating my interest in this. It sounds amazing, <laughs> the, the freedom involved and also how, how, how empowered um, one seems to become in, in yeah. learning about all this. Um, it, it sounds like your job uh, now of, with your permaculture design firm, it sounds like a super rich uh, job. <laughs> and, uh, can you tell us a bit about how this last year has been w with starting your company and, uh, working with different clients? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, we're about two and a half years into formalizing the business. It's myself and, uh, my business partner, Sam Kenworthy, who's also based here in Costa Rica. And yeah, it's been a journey, big learning curve. Um, just, you know, from the nuances of starting a business in a foreign country to, you know, the, the classic, you know, you're just kind of, what do they say? Fake it till you make it like you're, 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 you have to put yourself out there at times in, in really delicate ways. And so what we do, we help everybody from, 
you know, people that just have little homesteads or just bought a piece of land who are looking for advice or second opinion or brainstorming um, all the way to big farms or big developments that are, are looking to have, you know, production scale to sell to the, you know, the big supermarkets here. Um, we work a lot with small hotels that want kind of edible landscaping and want to incorporate guest experiences. At this point, we kind of take on anything that comes our way. Um, we're getting pretty full. Um, so we're at a place where we're talking a lot about how we want to grow as a business, which is really fun and scary at the same time. <laughs> and yeah, we've just been really fortunate um, and it's going well. Yeah. I'm really happy with where we're at. And uh, uh, do you have any interesting projects that you can share with us or uh, like successes, failures, or just some, some, some stories from this new, uh, this new journey of, uh, with your business? Yeah, I think one of the projects that in, a, in about three weeks we're going to start the installation of that I'm really excited about is will be a Kava farm. Um, so it'll be the first kava farm in Central America. Kava is a traditional Polynesian root crop that's used to make a ceremonial drink. And there's growing interest of it around the world. Um, and we want to grow the world's best kava here, organic certified. And so stuff like that's really fun. Um, like introducing a new crop to a country that, you know, could become like a, a real crop that can be grown in a sustainable way. It fits within you know, kind of what we call agroforestry systems, these, these systems that imitate the forest. Um, so stuff like that gets me really excited. And yeah, the flip side, there's all sorts of crazy and stressful projects. Um, I think I, I can think of a project, um, kind of the first time that I, I don't know if I'd use the word fired the client. I don't think it's <laughs> quite accurate, but was really happy to, to not continue. Um, a client had had purchased a really degraded piece of land, which is what most people buy here because it's most affordable and was really interested in using permaculture methods to grow uh, passion fruit to export back to Canada, which is like, cool. It's a great idea, but they wanted it to happen within like a year. They wanted that crop producing within a year and it can take like five years to recover soils on really degraded land that has like nauseous pasture grasses and has had a lot of um, compaction from cattle. And so just dealing with stuff like that, where like, I don't quite have the experience to be able to tell this guy, like, no, there's no way you can do that. It's my mind. It's like, all right, maybe we can pull it off. Like how much money do you have? Like how much compost can we buy? But at a certain point, just kind of stepping back and like, no, you can't, like, you can't do this. I know what you're saying. I know what your goals are. That's been a really interesting thing to navigate with a couple different projects. That one jumps out. And, and I was really glad that uh, somebody else who has more experience than me ended up taking on that, that project in particular. Sounds, uh, sounds interesting to be dealing with these, these people who have these different visions and, doing your best yeah. to accommodate them but at the end of the day there is you know a, a science behind you know what can work and what can't um yeah so when can we can we rewind a bit and um yeah 
before this, you worked at a sustainability education center um, for a long time, like close to 10 years, right? Could, yeah, could, could yeah. you tell us a bit about what you did there and the experiences, uh, some of the experiences you had and uh, some of the biggest teachings in, in that journey uh, of that decade? Yeah, so myself and the, my partner who I hitchhiked down here with, uh, my ex-partner, we ended up at a sustainability education center in the Central Pacific of Costa Rica and we basically became uh, co-directors there for about nine years. And um, it was an education center. It, is, it still operates a great place. Um, and it was also an attempt at a community and a farm and my role was was basically managing the farm while also diving into aspects of the business, administration, accounting, marketing, and then a lot of the education. Um, we received high school groups from all over, college groups, and, and teaching them about agriculture in the tropics, about permaculture design, uh, a lot of natural building activities and food processing activities. And um, it was a deep dive into communal living. It's a place where all meals are eaten communally. Um, it's a two hour bus ride from the nearest town. There's one bus a day, not on Sundays though. Um, and so like a pretty isolated community, about a hundred people deep in the mountains. And it was just like a really intense lesson in communal living. Um, and something that, you know, what I learned during that, those nine years, I'm able to apply a lot to, to work. Now we get a lot of, of communities that are forming in Costa Rica that contract us and we're able to provide assistance in, in what we call the invisible structures. Um, so these are, these are all the pieces of design that aren't physically tangible. So it's the economics, the finances, it's decision-making, um, conflict resolution, politics, uh, legal aspects, et cetera. Those are the hardest pieces um, for to make projects work. It's, it's pretty easy to get plants in the ground at the end of the day, but it's much harder to get a group of people to um, agree on how they want to make decisions. And yeah, my time at the, that education center yeah, there was a lot of successes and a lot of failures in that realm, but yeah, I learned a lot. Well, community is a really interesting thing because everyone wants to have more community in their life. And like certainly in, um, in the, in the United States and Canada, people live in, you know, with their fences and their own private homes, private lives. And, yeah. Start a lot of people start to feel a certain alienation of like lack of community, lack of people to hang out with. It's not quite the same in Latin America, I would say, and that's part of the reason why I was so drawn to living in Latin America is because yeah, people get together a lot more and they they have a much more open door policy with their friends and stuff. Um, but for those who actually want to start a community, most of the stories I've heard of are are failures. Uh, it's just yeah. very, very practically difficult to do. And, um, and so, yeah, you, you have firsthand experience with this, which is rare and valuable. And what, what is it that people do wrong? Like what are the main things that people do wrong when they, <laughs> when they try to set up a community? 
Yeah, uh, they don't write things down. <laughs> so they don't write down agreements is a, is a big one. Um, but yeah, let, let me share some of the stories of things that didn't work. And there was a lot. Uh, I'll just start by saying there was a ton that works and worked about this place. But there was pieces that failed. And, um, and those are pieces why I'm not involved there anymore um, in a deeper level. And so one of the first things that in hindsight, when the owners approached myself and my partner at the time about um, becoming business partners, which was the language they used, it was all just a handshake deal. We didn't write down anything. The, the agreement that we talked about, it, I don't even think it was sketched on a napkin. It was only vocalized. And in the end, that, is a, is a huge flaw and you, you're basically setting yourself up for failure of personal relationships by doing something like that. And I just stress to people over and over again, write everything down, get every agreement on paper, because guess what? We remember things really differently. Our memory is this like funky fluid thing, <laughs> our species memory. And when I think back and like, Oh no, we, you said you were going to do this, or I said, you know, I would make this type of commitment. The other person remembers it different, and, and it doesn't necessarily mean that one person's right or one person's wrong. It, it mostly means that we failed to write it down on paper. That's a big thing. Um, beyond that, like actually in the realm of, of forming a community, there's like a couple practical things you have to do right. And, and one is you have to get power dynamics sorted out. And the other is you have to understand why you're there, which, which is called purpose. And the story I, I tell that for me really hit this home, you know, maybe about five or six years after I was there was um, we got a herd of goats. My first year there, we got these goats and everyone's excited. Goats are pretty cool creatures. They're super smart. The babies are cute. We all like goat milk. Um, and it was fun at first, right? You're just like feeding these goats and, and the high school kids are coming in, they're getting to milk goats and people love that. Like what a great experience for somebody. Um, but eventually the system became stressful. It wasn't properly designed. This was before we really had a, an understanding of design, permaculture design. Um, so it wasn't a, a thought through system. I wouldn't even use the word system. It was just like goats <laughs> just doing their thing and are like, attempts to feed and keep them healthy and happy. It became really stressful. It became like a lot of hours of work for a small amount of milk. They'd get sick. We wouldn't know what to do. There'd be more babies. And at one point we had like 12 goats, which is a lot of goats. And this stress around these goats, it started becoming a stress between people that wanted to keep the goats and people that wanted to get rid of the goats. And the founder of the community the owner of the community, he really wanted to keep the goats. And myself and a, a small group that at that point had become what we called the core team, um, which we were considered ourselves co-owners and co-decision makers. Although in hindsight, neither of those things were actually true. We didn't hold, you know, that was in word only. Um, and so we had this stress between us and it started feeling really personal it was like 
the owner would say, Hey, I'm going to get rid of the goats. I know this is really stressful and months would go by and it just wouldn't happen. And you're just like pissed at each other and you're sitting in meetings for hours, which sucks. Like no one wants to do that. It's a sure sign of, of like community gone wrong is many long meetings. (laughs) And it was like this personal conflict. It was a type of conflict that it like started cracking at our relationships. And it was the type of crack that like we never were able to repair. Like, it was one of the things that probably started a long process that led to me leaving that project and community that started stressing my personal relationship with my partner that eventually led to us separating. Um, and in hindsight, and we figured this out a, a little bit ways into the process, really my, my partner did, she's, she's pretty brilliant. Um, we were looking at this as a personal conflict, but that's not what it was. It was a structural conflict. And so what that means is that we didn't actually have a structure of decision-making in place. We, we gave lip service to consensus, which is a type of decision-making, but we didn't have any training. And in the end, the owner held power. None of us had any actual power. We didn't have co-ownership in a legal sense. And so the owner could do what they wanted. It was, it was his project. It was his farm. He put all the money in. He'd taken the risk years before. He'd been there much longer. It's like, yeah, of course. If he wants goats, if he wants them as his pets, like that's his prerogative. But the language we were all using was suggesting that we shared power, we shared decision-making, but it ended up that just wasn't true. We had never structured in, like, this is how we're making decisions this is, we're doing it now in an agreement that we're signing, we're putting on paper, we're printing it, we're putting it on Google Drive, whatever, for the world to see so we can make an attempt at holding each other accountable. Once we recognize that it was a failure of structure and not a failure of personal relationships, we were able to start, you know, clawing our way out of that hole. Um, but it was just a really good reminder of, of, of power dynamics and how those affect decision-making. And then it was also a reminder of purpose. And the reason the owner wanted the goats and some of us wanted to get rid of the goats was because we viewed the purpose of the education center differently. And so the owner viewed the education center as a place for inspiration People would come there for a couple of days and they would leave totally inspired. And he was right. And it works. And still today, it's a wonderful place for that. And there was a group of us, so that really wanted it to be more like a hard skill training, like in sustainable animal husbandry. And it wasn't that. And so we had this, these opposing views of the type of education we wanted to provide. And so we were really forced to look at our purpose and decide you know, if we're going to keep goats, that means we're deciding we want to be a place that does inspiring education, which is great. Like, let's do it. Let's go all in on that and let's know what we do really well. Um, or do we want to be the opposite? Do we want to build a technical training program, which is a totally different thing. And so, you know, my long story here really amounts to us running up against not having structured in purpose, not having understood power dynamics and conflict resolution, we had to do all that retroactively. 
and it's really common in communities. It's a lot of work to do that stuff up front. It's time and, and it's really hard to predict, you know, what conflicts are going to be. And so you tend to push this work down the road. And if I go into a, a community or a place that's trying to form community and, and they're not talking about these things, they're not making attempts to formalize these contracts, even though, you know, we all know they're going to change, which is fine. If I don't see that happening, I don't have much confidence that that place is going to last, at least in the current vision that the people there hold. Well, this is all very interesting. Um, it really makes you think about what kind of structures we could we could add in our in our own lives and our in our relationships with people to keep things healthy in the long term. Yeah. And um, many different thoughts came to my mind, but it's interesting. For example, with marriage, I have I have some friends who say, uh, you know, what's what's the point of getting married? You know, we we love each other. Uh, you know why? Why do I need to sign this document? You know, for the government's sake. You know, it's it's kind of pointless. Yeah. But from what you're saying, it kind of makes the case of like, when you write it down on paper, it's a lot more clear like what you're both committing to, and it it seems like a a healthy a healthy kind of um, structure. Yeah, it's a good analogy. Yeah. Um, and so my wheels are just turning like crazy right now. But so you talked about agreeing on the, um, the ownership and on um, the, on agreeing on the purpose. Yeah. I I'm wondering if beyond those two, if there's any other structures that you can point to or suggest, I'm just thinking of, of a hypothetical case of you and your uh, colleague, right now in your company, what, what happens when you agree on the purpose and you, you agree that you're 50, 50 owners, but yeah. you still disagree on a specific thing. Is there a, is there a way to deal with that? Yeah. You know, you basically need a conflict resolution strategy. Um, and so, you know, that might be as simple as going to a third party, you know, maybe you have like a board of advisors um, or bringing in a, a mediator. And obviously that like jumping to that level is, is going to be like something really serious that you, you disagree on. Like I want to sell the business or something. Um, but I think it's really important to have that language in there. And in at the education center, when we started actually building these structures and making organizational contracts, that was what we got to is like, if we can't make, you know, if, we run into this type of conflict, we can't resolve it. And we agree to hire this company as a third party mediator. Like we knew who we wanted to hire. We had that and it was all written on paper. Um, I think the other part that you can work on is just actually your communication skills, your individual conflict resolution between you and your business partner or you and your spouse. Um, so training like nonviolent communication becomes super powerful. Um, so that you don't arrive at those points of like deep tension and resentment that, that start kind of cracking everything. Um, you know, I think beyond that, there's like two other really obvious 
structures that if you're starting a community or business, you, you have to know. And one is how do new people join? And the other is how do people leave? So if I got, I'm ready to get out, what, what happens? If we want to bring in a third partner in our firm, how do we do that? Um, those are really important things to, to get down on paper and understand that process. And, and it's going to change and that's okay. Like these are, these are living documents, but having it down on paper is, is pretty essential to success. Well, this information is very useful and interesting. Um, and I can't help but notice that it's wonderfully aligned or metaphorical with our podcast, Roots of Impact, because <laughs> we, we want to get to, you know, down to the roots of how does impact happen. Mm. So if you think of impact as like a tree blossoming up, you know, into a mighty tree that then gives flowers and fruits to create many other trees. It's like there's a certain foundation to yeah. to making things happen in a positive way. And what you're talking about is like the, uh, the foundation for something to grow in a healthy way for a project or a relationship. Yeah, uh, it's real. It's true bedrock, like ha making these good agreements and uh, conflict resolution and decision making and things like that. Yeah, I think it's the bedrock of this. So Scott, um, if it's okay with you, I would like to switch gears a little bit here. Um, yeah. You, you, you said earlier that, um, that thinking about, you know, global warming and these big issues is a bit overwhelming. So you would rather, you know, think about tangibly like what, what you can do and, uh, you know, on a small scale, helping people around you, helping yourself and working with nature and, I, I like certainly mankind has a problematic relationship with nature to say the least, <laughs> which is basically yeah. like we destroy nature. <laughs> we destroy our habitat. We think of nature as a commodity and yeah. um, we set, we, you know, we chop down the rainforest for profit and, you know, to, we're basically destroying our own habitat uh, to our, yeah. to our peril. Um, and you're a guy who works on a day-to-day -day basis with, with nature and with humans and with uh, the relationship between humans and nature and the relationship between humans and humans. And you're, you're very much, a, you know, I guess a therapist for the, the relationship between humans <laughs> and nature, I would say. Never and, been called that, but all right. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm wondering, like, what do you think about, what do you think about this? Like, do you have any suggestions? Maybe you can draw on your, you know, your own life or people yeah. that you've met. Like, do you have any suggestions on how we can heal, like our relationship with nature? Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, I think people usually have like one or of two views of nature. Either they fear it or they romanticize it. And they're kind of extremes. Um, and so we fear it, you know, it might actually be like a scary thing. Like I'm not going to go and like camp in the forest. I'm not going to go do that. Like that's different. There's weird noises. It's uncomfortable. Or we romanticize it 
in a way that we think it's this pristine, untouched space. Um, we think that indigenous groups only lived in this Eden-like paradise and they did nothing but only the best things for, for nature. Um, and, and both of those are problematic viewpoints. And I think that the only way to like overcome them is to spend time in nature. I think you just like have to get out there. And, you know, as a kid, I spent a bunch of time in nature. I was just like, I was building forts. I would, you know, hunt for snakes and turtles and collect little animal skulls and, you know, make maps of all the streams. And, and then I, I lost that. I disconnected from it. Like middle school started and you start playing sports and student council in high school and there's girls and there's beer and country music concerts. I'm from Ohio. So that's what we would go to. Um, and college, you're just doing your normal thing in college. Um, all that time though, I felt like I was missing out. And by the end of college, I like, I knew I wanted to get back out into nature. I didn't know how to do it at all. Um, like none of my friends, everybody was going on to law school or medical school, or they had taken like whatever fancy job. And for me, and it's something I recommend to, to young people all the time, I was fortunate enough to find out about um, like conservation corps. And so these are our remnants of the civilian conservation corps, the new deal, the great depression programs, uh, works programs. And they're all over um, the United States. And they're usually engaging um, people in college or just out of college to work in wilderness areas, national parks, like build trails to repair streams, all sorts of stuff. And you get paid to do it, which is a bonus. And that, like, I remember seeing that job on the internet as I was, like, trying to figure out what I wanted to do after college. It was just a three-month thing. And I was like, I want that so bad. It was like a backcountry position out in Colorado. I wanted to be in the mountains. Just, like, I was ready. And I signed up for it. And what? It just, like, forced me into it. It's like, I couldn't like, just like, oh, I'm going to go for a hike. And it was like, oh, I'm going to be out in the wilderness now for like two weeks at a time. And I have to learn how to like cook food over this like tiny propane burner and like be comfortable in my tent and, you know, shit in a hole and all these things. And it just like forced me into it. And suddenly I was surrounded by other people that were into it. And what was really cool about it is it didn't, promote a fear or a romantic view of nature it we were working we were we were repairing uh we're taking out barbed wire fence in wilderness areas to open up room for elk herds we were clearing a blowdown from storms on trails so that um hunters that would come in on on with horses and pack animals uh outfitters could get back into the wilderness and engage with it um and so it was, it was land that was being used for recreation, for food. It was also conserving. It was also stunningly beautiful. I remember like, you know, 
going over crests of, of ridges and just like being moved to tears at, at the, the landscape. Um, but that being around other people that were into it, like surrounding myself that were comfortable with nature and just forcing myself to spend time in it, but in a way that didn't view it as this thing that shouldn't be touched, I think was really valuable. And I think is really important for people in, in the more, the last couple decades, our understanding of, of forest ecosystems, like the Amazon has really changed. It used to be considered this like giant unexplored wilderness. What we actually know now, it's basically a planted managed forest that indigenous groups, large civilizations of indigenous groups were planting and we're encouraging species to come up. And the reason it's so full of food is because of those groups. There's no such thing as like unexplored wilderness on our planet. Humans have been having a co-evolutionary relationship with these spaces forever. And I think that's an important thing to understand, you know, coming back to the permaculture perspective where we're trying to take ecological principles and put it to use. We're generally not trying to create forests that no one's ever going to go into. We need to put our land to work. We have to, we have to, we're going to need timber. We're going to need food. We're going to need nuts. We're going to need meat. Like people are going to keep consuming these things. Our ability to produce those while imitating that ecology is really valuable. Um, And so for me, that's the type of connection with nature that I think is really valuable for people to cultivate. That's beautiful. Um, Thank you to, uh, to your parents for exposing you to nature for which is yeah. probably why, why you're doing the work you are today. And I know when I look back at my childhood, some of the really the fondest memories are like walking through, you know, ancient forests with my grandfather, like in France and, uh, yeah. horseback riding with my mom and, and, uh, the, the adults of tomorrow are the children of today. So it, it makes total sense that, we j- in order to save our planet, we need to g- we need to get the children out into nature because once you yeah once you once you feel the magic of it and the symbiotic relationship, then then you're not going to destroy it. I I credit that so much. I mean, I'd come home from school every day, and I'd get on the phone and I'd call my buddy Joey, and <laughs> we would always meet at the bottom of the hill between our two houses, and we would just go into the creeks. And we had our little mud boots on at some point. We'd fall into the water and they'd be filled, filled with water. And, and we just explored and we had a lot of freedom. And not everyone has that luxury, obviously. We had this like pretty big kind of forest at our disposal, um, at, at our fingertips. But there's nature everywhere and people find really unique ways to connect um, with the outdoor space. And, and so if you have a kid in that, there's a wonderful book called Last Child in the Woods by Richard Liu. Um, it's probably 15 years old now, but it was a book um, that I read when I was out in my tent for the first time in that trail crew that absolutely triggered for me the feeling that I never want to be in an office as I sit in 
my new office, which is kind of ironic, um, but I have a nice view. Um, <laughs> I like, I never want to work in a cubicle. I just want to work with my body and my hands. I want dirt in my fingernails. And that, that book was really powerful for me. Um, and like trying to find a way to cultivate that in your life is, I think it's a really important step for everybody. Well, Scott, we, we like to, we like to finish all of our interviews uh, with an, a kind of action item suggested by, by the guests. What is, what is one thing that you would recommend to the listener who, you know, maybe they don't have kids so they can't yeah. bring their kids into the nature, but <laughs> what is one thing that any person can do to make this world more beautiful? Man, just plant a tree. <laughs> <laughs> I know that might be cliche, but seriously, like once you put a tree in the ground, like make it a fruit tree. So it's really tasty. Um, like pick your favorite apple variety or down here, your favorite mango, care for it really well. Uh, pee on it a lot. Trees love human pee. It's a good plant food. And like, once you do that, you start like, I, it forces you to be present in that space more. Um, and you just become connected and it forces you to be patient because it's going to take three or four or five years before you see a fruit. And we're, we live in a really transient world. We live in a world that, you know, we seek that instant gratification, right? Um, trees don't operate like that <laughs> at all. And so it's just this daily teacher for us. Um, I try to plant something every single day and I'm, I'm usually able to do that. And so that would be my advice, like get a tree in the ground. Well, thank you so much, Scott. Beautiful suggestion. Uh, it's been wonderful talking with you. Um, I'm really grateful that you joined us today. Thank you, man. Yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, it's been great to reconnect with you and excited to, to listen to some of the other guests that, that you're going to have on the show. Thanks for, um, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Hope to have you again, uh, in the near future. Yeah. Por favor. Roots of Impact Podcast. Roots of Impact Podcast of impact.